0: but if you've got your Bible, uh, make your way to Genesis chapter 25. If you don't have a Bible, we have some for you over there uh, on that table. You can go grab that and keep that. It's our gift to you as a church. Genesis at 25 is where we're going to be this morning. We're, we're getting back into the, the book of Genesis and our series in the book of Genesis, and it's been about two months since we've been in the book of Genesis, and so I want to just Real quickly, catch you up on where we've been. And so, as the book of Genesis opens, we see God create everything out of nothing. He speaks everything into existence just by the power of His word. He creates this good world for us to live in, and He creates man, Adam and Eve, our first parents. Humanity is the pinnacle of creation and places them in a garden where they had life with God to the full. Everything they could have ever wanted, but they thought that uh, life and freedom would be found more so outside of God. And so they rebelled and they tried to find life outside of God. And they brought sin and death and destruction and curse and brokenness into our world. But immediately after that happens... God makes a promise in Genesis chapter 3 that he's going to bring a Savior, that sin won't get the last word, that this Savior will come and will reverse the curse, crush the head of the serpent, and free us and free our world from the sin and the brokenness that we've unleashed on them. And so we've been tracing how this promise develops and plays out through the chapters of the book. Of Genesis and the next big thing we see is that God calls and chooses a man named Abraham to be the one through whom this Savior is going to come and so he calls Abraham and he promises him that he will make him a great nation that he will be with him and that he will bless him that he will give him and his offspring the promised land and that through his offspring that through his family all the nations of the world are going to find blessing that the Savior is going to come through his line. And so we walked through the life of Abraham and just saw week after week God's faithfulness on display to him uh, as God was continually faithful to him in spite of Abraham's uh, constant failures and complete inability to get it right. Uh, We learned what it looks like to walk by faith in God as Abraham just over the decades of his life through many stops and starts and ups and downs learns more and more what it looks like. To walk by faith in God and trust the power of God to keep his promises and fulfill his word. And then finally, 25 years after God initially called Abraham and gave him this promise, they have the son of promise, uh, Isaac. And so the book of Genesis is going to spend a few chapters talking about Isaac, but it's going to move really quickly to focus on one of his sons, Jacob. And so we've named the sermon series uh, for this portion of the book of Genesis, Jacob, living in grace. Because if Abraham's life showed us the faithfulness of God and what it looks like to walk by faith, uh, Jacob's life showcases the grace of God and how we're called to live in response to it. What it looks like to live in response to it. Because I'll just go ahead and spoil it for you. I know we're not there yet, but like, Jacob is a terrible, terrible dude. And he is awful. He's not a great guy. He is a scheming deceiver Yet he's the one that God sets his love on and chooses to continue this promise through and saves. And so week after week, we're going to see in and through his life, just the grace of God on display for the absolutely undeserving. And that's actually what we're going to see in the text this morning, as well as we're introduced to Jacob and his brother Esau. We're going to see that God shows us undeserved grace, both in choosing us for salvation and warning us away from sin. And so, yes, uh, we, we've got to talk about election and predestination today. Uh, don't get nervous. Don't get sweaty. Uh, it's going to be fun. We'll have some fun. Uh, but let's look at this together. Genesis 25, we're going to start in verse 19, and we're going to read through the end of the chapter. Starting in verse 19, the very Word of God to us today. It speaks to us like this. It says, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel of the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah his wife conceived. The, sh- the children struggled together within her, And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. That's awesome. Uh, So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted, And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus, Esau despised his birthright. And so the first big kind of overarching thing we see in this text is the grace of God's election. And we're going to talk about what that means in just a second. Uh, But the text actually begins by telling us a little bit about Isaac. And so back in chapter 4, we saw Isaac and Rebecca get married, and now we find out that that Isaac was 40 years old when this happened. And it it tells us that just like Abraham and Sarah, his parents experienced barrenness, uh, Isaac and Rebekah experienced this sort of barrenness as well. Uh, But unlike Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah don't try to take matters into their own hands. They don't come up with a plan for Isaac to sleep with one of the servant girls, no, Isaac prays to the Lord for his wife and God answers his prayer and grants his prayer and she uh, conceives and gives birth to twins. Now, this is something we never see Abraham do for Sarah in Genesis. He, we never see him pray for his wife. Maybe he does, it's just not recorded for us. And so I think by recording this one for us, the author of Genesis is trying to highlight Isaac's prayer for Rebecca here. And so this is convicting, but I'll just ask you, do you, do you pray for your spouse like this? Do you, do you pray consistently and constantly that God would bless them, that He would show favor to them, that He would do good to them? Do you pray for your spouse like that? And, and, and I know that at first glance, on first read, it seems like the first time that God, that, that God answered Isaac's prayer, the very first time He prayed for Rebecca, like A, they find out that they're barren, B, Isaac prays, C, God answers and she gives birth to twins, but notice how old Isaac was in verse 26 when she gave birth to these twins. He was 60 years old. So they got married when he was 40, and she gave birth to the twins when he was 60, which means they experienced how many years of barrenness? 20, right? 20 if you're not very good at math. The answer is 20 years that they walked through this. So 20 years that they walked through barrenness. Do you think that the first time Isaac prayed about this was the time that God answered his prayer and and Rebekah conceived? No, of course not, right? He'd probably been praying about this for 20 long years, longing to have children, longing for God to answer, wondering why God had not answered him yet. And so listen, this text shows us that so often we're not going to get the answer as to why God's making us wait on something like this that we're praying for, why it seems like He's abandoned us, why it doesn't make sense as to why He's not answering, why He chose to allow them to suffer through this barrenness for 20 long years. And look, I don't have the answer as to why God allows these sorts of things in a broken world like this, but what I can say is that we can trust that he has not fallen asleep at the wheel when it comes to your life? He does have good purposes for your life, even if we may be able to never, even if we may never be able to understand them, in this life. And I'll also just say that this text also shows us that the purity culture garbage that so many of us were taught—that if you uh, Follow God, and if you remain a virgin until you get married, then God will bless you with an awesome marriage and an awesome sex life, and you'll have a bunch of kids as a reward for your obedience. Uh, It's just that. It's garbage teaching. Because listen, were Isaac and Rebekah followers of God? Yes, they were. Did they remain virgins until they got married? Yes, they did. And then on top of that, when this didn't immediately happen, and they didn't immediately have kids, Uh, Did they try to take matters into their own hands like their parents, Abraham and Sarah, like Isaac's parents, Abraham and Sarah, did? No, they did not, but yet still God made them wait 20 years for this. And look, God was not punishing him in that either. God's doing something in our waiting, in our longing, in our wondering, in our suffering. He's drawing us nearer to himself as we wait on him. And so I would just encourage you, man, don't lose heart. Keep praying about these things. Keep clinging to God. Keep waiting with hope, knowing that God will answer and that even if the answer is not the answer that we want, we can trust that God gives us what we would ask for if we could see and know all the things that He sees and knows. Look, I know it's so hard to believe that when you're stuck waiting and you're wondering why God seemingly is not answering But we can trust His goodness and His purposes for us. Psalm 34, He tells us that He is near to the brokenhearted and that He saves those who are crushed in spirit. That He will be enough for us while we wait. But God, uh, He he grants Isaac's prayer after all these years. And Rebecca conceives, and uh, it's twin boys. and, And she starts having these pains. And these aren't just kind of your normal pains. Like This isn't just normal pregnancy pains. This isn't even normal pregnant with twins sort of pains. Uh, this is like, these two boys are getting after each other in the womb. They're like UFC fighting each other, elbow dropping each other. Like, I kind of just imagine that at one point, like, Esau kind of throws Jacob into the ropes of the womb and like, His head kind of pokes out of her stomach. Like, this is not your ordinary uh, sort of thing going on. These two are fighting like this. And so uh, Rebecca feels this sort of pain. She's wondering why they're duking it out in her womb. And she goes to God to ask, what in the world is going on? Uh, If this is what was going to happen, why did you give me kids in the first place? Uh, And God tells her that these two boys in her stomach are actually going to become two nations and two groups of people And that the older brother is going to serve the younger brother. Now this is a massive reversal of what would happen in this society. Uh, Being the firstborn meant that you got rights and privileges that the other kids in your family just did not. But God is saying that the conventional way of doing things is going to be flipped. That Esau is going to serve Jacob. And that the Savior, the promise is going to continue through Jacob's line even though Jacob is younger. And so God chooses Jacob and not Esau in this. And and listen, hear me, it's not as if in doing this, uh, God's predestining Esau to hell. Uh, Actually, the question of Esau's salvation is really just kind of left unanswered in the Bible. And and God's doing this, not just for the good of Jacob, but for the good of the nations, that the Savior who would bless all the nations would come into the world. And what we're going to clearly see as we continue walking through the story of Jacob's life is that Jacob is not being chosen by God here because he's a better person than Esau is. No, they are both horrifically shady and devious in their own special ways. It's not because God looked down the halls of time and saw that Jacob would be a much better asset to his team because once again, Jacob's not bringing a whole lot to the table. Like He's not a five-tool player that, that gives you a reason to draft him. He doesn't have assets to his name. Uh, It tells us in verse 26 that he comes out of the womb holding on to Esau's heel. And so they name him Jacob, which means heel grabber or deceiver or cheater. And that's going to describe Jacob for the vast majority of his life. This is who he's going to be, a manipulator, a schemer, a deceiver, a cheater, who's constantly working situations and people to his own advantage, kind of playing the angles so that it can benefit him and turn out good for him. Like God's choosing of Jacob here is not based on any merit on Jacob's part. He absolutely did not earn it. Like the only answer Jacob will be able to give as to why God chose him and why God showed favor to him is because of God's grace. There's nothing that he did. There's nothing that he will do. And look, the Apostle Paul actually picks up on this in Romans chapter 9 and expands this and applies this truth and reality to all Christians as well. Listen to what he says. He says, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it's written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, when it says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, the Bible is using hyperbole to say that Jacob is the one that God chose to continue this promise through, uh, not Esau, even though Esau was the other one, was the older one. Uh, And Paul says that God did this in order that his purpose of election might continue so that his power to call and to save completely by grace and not by our works might be put on clearer display. And so because Uh, the text of Genesis brings this up, Uh, we've we've got to talk about this. And so I'll just start by saying, um, we believe election and predestination are open-handed issues here at Veritas. Um, These are biblical concepts, so you've got to do something with them. Like, what I mean by that is the words election and predestination are in the Bible, so you can't really say, like, well, I don't believe in election and predestination. Like, you have to believe something about them. They're in the Bible. Um, but, but hear me say, like, if you don't land in the exact same place as the elders do on the specifics of how this works out, like that's totally okay. We're still going to be a happy family, loving and serving Jesus on mission together. It's an open-handed issue. Uh, and if after I lay the position out and what we believe the Bible teaches on this, you're still not persuaded by our position, that's okay too. Like I said, we're going to be a big happy family that loves and serves Jesus together on mission. It's an open-handed issue for us. But, but I do want to lay this out for you, um, both because the Bible talks about it here and brings it up, and I want to show you why we believe this is such good news. So we believe that the Bible teaches that God is sovereign. He's in control over everything, uh, including our salvation. That means that without Him first choosing us, without Him electing and predestining us to salvation, uh, we would never choose Him. We don't believe that God kind of looked down the halls of time and saw whether or not we would choose Him, and then on the basis of that choice, turned around and chose us, uh, because Ephesians 2 says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and dead people don't make choices. Dead people don't make decisions. Dead people don't get to say, like, oh, I want to be alive now. No, no one left, none of us left to ourselves. Would, choose to, would have first chosen God on our own, would have first chosen to come to Him left to ourselves. God had to move, God had to work, God had to choose first. And, and I think that where so many of us get messed up with this and get angry and frustrated about this is in forgetting the fact that, that actually all of us are undeserving of salvation, that, that none of us deserve this, that all of us actually deserve judgment and hell and separation from God. I think that when the terms election and predestination come up, what so many of us think, this picture we get in our minds of what this is, is that, that before the dawn of time, all of humanity was kind of on this neutral conveyor belt, and uh, God just kind of arbitrarily pushed some people to the right and said, okay, you get to go to heaven. And then he just kind of arbitrarily pushed some people to the left and says, sorry, you get to go to hell. Uh, but that's not the biblical picture of election at all. Uh, the biblical picture is much more like this. None of us is on a neutral conveyor belt. None of us is neutral. None of us is good. All of us are bad. All of us have turned away and rebelled and earned judgment and hell and separation from God. Like that's how we've used our free will to run away from God and sin and rebel against him. And so left to ourselves, that's what we're going to choose every time. We're going to choose sin. We're going to choose rebellion. We're going to choose to try to find life outside of God every time. Time, and so God, in His great mercy, chooses to save so many of us and reaches in and says, No, you're not going to give yourself to your own freely chosen destruction. You're mine, and and He grabs you up out of that and He sheds His mercy on you and He saves you. I I mean, think about it. Think back to Genesis, somebody pointed this out, but think back to Genesis chapter 6 when Noah's building the ark before the flood. It's not as if Noah had to stand at the doors of the ark and say, sorry guys, I know there's a long line, but we just don't have any more room. So many people have wanted to come in and find shelter from the judgment of God uh, that, that we just can't let any more people in. I really wish we could. I'm so sorry to turn you away. That's not what happened. Right? Noah, Noah pleaded for 120 years. He warned people. He pleaded with people to repent and get right and avoid the coming judgment of God and no one took him up on the offer no one decided to get in the boat with him and his family no one used their free will to choose to be saved like we need god to move in our hearts and make us alive if we're ever going to choose him and look maybe you would object to that well well all this sort of election and predestination stuff man it, it really just isn't fair and look, Paul answers that objection in Romans 9. Um, you, can, you can investigate that more later for yourself, but I'll just kind of sum up one of the things he says in there, which is that you and I don't really want fair, because fair is us getting sent to hell. Like, fair is us getting the just, just punishment that our sins rightly deserve. We don't want God to be fair. We want God to be merciful. We want God to be gracious. We want God to not give us what our sins deserve. And look, this is what He so graciously does for so many of us. This is not a theological truth that meant, that's meant to cause us worry either. We're not supposed to be kind of up in arms about like, well, am I chosen or am I not? Am I elect or am I not? And like, Do you love Jesus? Do you trust in Him? Or are you seeking to follow Him as imperfectly as that might be? Man, then you can know that God has chosen you Because Ephesians 2 says that even the faith you had to believe in Jesus is a gift from God. That you wouldn't have that if he hadn't given it to you as a gift. You wouldn't have had that if he had not chosen you. And look, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I I would argue that you even being here or watching online or investigating these claims uh, is good evidence that God's doing this work in you. That God's drawing you to himself. In John chapter 6, Jesus puts these two truths side by side in the same sermon so that we would not uh, fall into the ditch either way. In John chapter 6, as Jesus is preaching to the crowd, he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. But then he also says, "But whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And so the proper response to all of this, if you're not a follower of Jesus, is to come to him, to believe in him, and you'll know that you were chosen. He never, he will not say to anyone who comes to him, oh, sorry, you can't get in, Uh, you just weren't chosen. No, whoever comes to him, whoever comes to him, he will never cast out. Whoever, you're a part of that whoever. Don't write yourself out of this. But I want to draw you back to why this is such great news and why this can be such a comfort to our souls. Because once again, you're going to see as we go through Jacob's life, he is awful. He is a terrible dude. He makes Abraham look like a saint in a lot of ways. And yet God chooses and loves him. And this reality that Jacob is not chosen because of any worthiness in him is actually why the doctrine of election can be such a deep comfort to our souls. Because if God chooses us and he loves us because of something that we did then his love for us is conditional and not free. Like we earned that love. We obligated him to love us in that way. And that makes that sort of love incredibly unstable and vulnerable because if God chooses us and he loves us because of the faith that he saw that we would put in him or, or the works he saw we would do for him or whatever it is, and then our keeping of his love, it's dependent on the strength of our faith, on the ability of us to hold ourselves to it. Uh, the ability of us to do good works, and you'll never be secure that way. You're always going to be anxious, questioning, is my faith strong enough? Have I done enough? Have I sinned too much? Have I sinned myself out of the love of God? Have I done enough to keep myself in His good graces? But look, the doctrine of election tells us that God's love is something that you didn't earn, and therefore it's something that you can never lose. Like, hear me, election means that God loved you before there was even a you to love, that he's always loved you, not because of anything worthy in you, but simply because he loves you, simply because that's who he is. Charles Spurgeon said it like this. He said, I believe the doctrine of election because I'm quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I'm sure he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. And there's no reason why God should love us like this. But he does. And so listen, don't write yourself out of this. I just know that so many of us believe that the depths of God's love for us, that that this would actually be true, that God would actually like us, that he would want us around, that he doesn't just put up with us, that he would actually delight in us and that he would do this for us. So many of us believe that that really just can't be for us. That that can only be for someone else. Because we've got this thing in our past that's so dark. Or we've got this sin right now that we just can't seem to get victory over. Or we're just not as faithful as the people we look around and see around us. But look, the Bible is telling you here that the whole point is that God, and saw, God saw and knew all of that about you. And still chose you in spite of all of that. Still chose to set his love on you and bring you back to himself and unite you to himself forever. Still chose to do this. Still chose you. Individually. You. He looked on you with this sort of love. He looked on you with this sort of delight. As sinful as you are. It's incredible. It's it's incredibly good news. And it should produce a, a humble confidence in it. A humility that knows We're sinners. We've done nothing to earn this or deserve it, but a confidence that knows because it's all of God, we can't lose it, and God actually does delight in us. He really does view us this way, and He really has adopted us as His children. And so this text shows us the grace of God's election of us, His choosing of us, but it also shows us the grace of God's warning to us. Because as the text moves on, verse 27 tells us that when the boys grow up, uh, Esau's the more outdoorsy type, uh, while Jacob's a little bit more cultured. Uh, He's a quiet man, he's domestic, and uh, he's high class. He likes to stay in the tent. And look, please don't read our culture into this. Like the Bible's not rendering a judgment on which of those two is better. It's really not saying that Esau's the man's man and uh, Jacob's kind of a sissy mama's boy. It's really just saying that there are different people with different interests. And unfortunately, because of these different interests, each of the parents play favorites with one of these boys. And we're going to see the repercussions of how this works out and the brokenness that this causes in their family throughout the book of Genesis. But notice what it says here. It says that Esau loved, that Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his wild game, because of what Esau could do for him and the skill he had as a hunter. And so I'm not a parent, but I will tell you parents like, you shouldn't do this. You shouldn't play favorites like this. Please don't just love and favorite your children for what they can do for you. Because like I said, we're going to see the brokenness that this leads to and how this plays out and just shatters things in this family as this story goes on. But before we get there, we get this story at the end of chapter 25 about a time when Esau had been hunting in the field and Jacob was cooking some stew. And so Esau comes back in from the field and he's hungry and he asks Jacob for something to eat. And uh, Jacob, being the schemer that he is, he sees his opportunity. He's like, all right, uh, yes, you can have some of this as long as you sell your birthright to me right now. And uh, we've got no clue how old Jacob and Esau are, are here in this story But my guess is that they're teenage boys, um, because notice again what Esau says in verse 32 after Jacob says this. He says, what good is the birthright to me now? I'm literally about to die if I don't get something to eat. And, And so look, if you have teenage boys, or you've been a teenage boy, or you grew up with a brother who was a teenage boy, or you've been around teenage boys at all, you know that they hit this period of time where their stomach just becomes a bottomless pit, And they can eat full meals like every hour and a half on end, and it still will not satisfy them. Like your grocery bill is like $500 a week, right? You just cannot give them enough food. They're constantly hungry. And so, like I said, only a teenage boy is going to exaggerate like this and be like, hey, birthright doesn't matter because if I don't get some food right this second, I'm literally going to die. It's like, dude, you had three Big Macs like 30 minutes ago. You're not going to die. You're fine. You're not even hungry. But, but Jacob, you know, he's a schemer, so he doubles down, he sees his end, and he says, okay, you can have some of this, but but we're not just gonna do kind of a gentleman's agreement that you can go back on later. I want you to swear to me. I want to get this in writing, I want to make this official so that you can't go back on this. You sell me your birthright right now. And Esau does it. He sells Jacob his birthright, he eats the stew, he gets up, and he goes on his way, and the author of Genesis kind of concludes the story by telling us that in this way, by doing this, Esau despised his birthright, meaning he treated it lightly. He acted like it wasn't important, like it didn't matter, like it wasn't a big deal to hold on to, that it was only worth a bowl of soup. And so why is this story in here? Why why does Genesis tell us this so early on in Jacob and Esau's life? I think Esau stands as a warning to us to not do the same thing, to not despise the grace of God, to not treat it lightly. Like the fact that he had been given, that he had been given the opportunity to be the firstborn with all the rights and privileges that that came with, uh, that didn't matter to him at all. He doesn't care about God or what God wants for him. He's just completely focused on getting his urges and his needs and his, his urges and his desires satisfied in the moment. And this is what the book of Hebrews says about this, how it expands it and applies it to all of us. Listen to what Hebrews says in Hebrews 12. It says that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So the Bible compares Esau's decision here to sexual immorality. It's the same idea of being ruled by your lust and your desires and your urges and your wants and letting those drive your decision-making. Esau's so ruled by his desires that he cares about the present way more than the future. So much so that he's willing to give up all of the privileges of being the firstborn, everything that that comes with, just to get his stomach filled one time. In an instant, he throws it all away. And the book of Hebrews is warning us, to, it says that he stands as a warning to us to not do the same thing. Because what it also shows us is the seriousness of the consequences that he faces. It says he found no chance to repent, even though he sought it with tears. That means he wasn't able to get the birthright back. Even after later on, he realized this was a stupid decision and he shouldn't have done this, it was too late. He couldn't change it. He couldn't get the birthright back. And listen, the same thing is going to be true for us. Look, when we come to Jesus for salvation, He forgives every single one of our sins. Past sins, present sins, future sins that you haven't even committed yet, they're all forgiven. But look, the forgiveness of your sins and the fact that we will not face the wrath of God does not mean that we won't face the consequences in this life of our sin if we continue to choose sinful and selfish and foolish decisions. We will. Forgiveness does not get rid of the consequences. And what I want to warn you with from this text and show you from this text is to tell you that the decisions you're making right now are setting the trajectory for your life and your family. They really are. Even if they seem small, and inconsequential, just like I'm sure Esau thought this was. I mean, it was just a single meal. These small sins that you're nourishing and cherishing in the dark. These small compromises that you justify as to why it's not a big deal because, well, at least I'm not doing this. Like, you are forming the patterns right now in your life that are going to blossom later on down the road for good or for bad. And so look, I I really just want to shoot as straight with you as I can God will forgive your sin, but that doesn't mean that you might not blow up your marriage and end up with a divorce and no possibility to reconcile if you continue to choose selfish and sinful action. Like God will forgive your sin, but that doesn't mean that you're not laying the foundations of an addiction that will take you years to overcome and get victory over if you're continually choosing that sin now. God will forgive your sin, but if you're continually pulling away from community and being known, you're going to look up 10 years down the road and wonder why you feel so distant from God, why you still feel so defeated by sin, and why you still feel so isolated and alone. If right now you're trying to live through your children and project all your desires on them and expect perfection of them and live vicariously through them, And God will forgive that sin, but don't be surprised if your children grow up and want nothing to do with you, and you have a really hard time with any possibility of restoring that relationship. Like when you live for the moment and you just give in to these sinful desires, even if they seem small, you're going to reap the consequences of that in the future. You're sowing right now what you will reap down the road. Like the consequences of our sin and choosing these small compromises and being ruled over by our desires like this, it's real. Like I, I don't want to just paper over this and act like it, this isn't the case and that this isn't going to happen to you because it will. Like look right at me. You're not going to be the exception to this rule. I'm not going to be the exception to this rule. This is real and it matters. God is trying to warn us away from this saying... Don't do this. It's going to end in destruction. And that's really bad news. Because let's just be honest with each other. We've got quite a bit of Esau in us, do we not? Like living for the moment, being ruled by our sinful and selfish desires, despising our birthright, and treating the grace of God like it's a light, unimportant thing. That describes all of us. We are Esau. And I'm sure you've realized by now that just trying harder to stop giving in to these urges and to be a better person uh, has not helped you, has not fixed you, has not kept you from still making these compromises and still giving in to these same patterns of sin. Like we, by and large, we know the right answer. We know what to do. We just don't do it. And left to ourselves, we really don't want to do it. We really don't have the power to do it. We really, our lives play out just like Esau. And so what do we do with this? Is there any hope for us in this? Well, the good news that this text leaves us with is that there is hope. There is good news, and there is hope. Here's the good news. We have all forsaken and despised the grace of God. We've all despised and forsaken our birthright, but there's one who did not so that he could give us his. You see, Jesus is the true older brother, the the one who had all the rights and privileges of sonship to his name. And he had no reason to share his birthright with us, no reason to come to us, but he did. The Bible tells us that He is God. Fully God. Equal with God the Father. Yet He didn't hold on to the rights and privileges that came with that, but He humbled Himself and took on our flesh so that He could share His birthright with us. He came and lived the perfect life that Jacob and Esau and you and I have not lived when He was tempted by the devil in the desert to turn stones into bread after 40 days of fasting when He was really hungry He did not give in. He was fully obedient. He trusted God and was obedient all the way to death, even death on a cross. And he died as our brother for our sins, even though he had no sins of his own to pay for. He reaped the consequences of the sin that we had sown. And he died for our sin, but he did not stay dead. He rose from the dead forever victorious over our sin and death. And look, because He has done this, because He's victorious over our sin and death, the words of John 1 can be true for us. John chapter 1 tells us that Jesus came to His own, and His own did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of man, nor of blood, nor the will of man, nor the will of flesh, but of God." We have all forsaken and despised our birthright, but the good news is that Jesus can give us His. He can give us the right to become children of God. And here's the good news. When the Father adopts us and brings us into His family and unites us with Jesus, His Son, He sends the Spirit of His Son into our hearts so that we would have the power to trust God as our Father the power to say no to sin, the power to not despise our birthright and the grace of God. This is how we find the power to fight our sin. You see, when the temptation comes to give in to our urges and despise the grace of God and forget the grace of God, we say, this didn't choose me. This doesn't love me. This didn't die for me. This will never do for me what God has done for me. This will never be for me what God is for me. This sin doesn't care about me. Yeah, but God has loved me every second of my life. He loved me before there was even a me to love. And Jesus has died for me so that I would never go another second without having and knowing the love of God. So I'm not going to give in to this urge. I'm not going to live for the moment. I'm going to trust God to satisfy me. This sin is not worth it. Ray Ortland says that we always sin too soon. What he means by that is that we forget the grace of God. We forget how good God is for us and what the future with Him holds for us. And so we think we need this sin in this moment. But when we'll rest in God's undeserved grace for us and preach the gospel to our own hearts, more and more we'll find the power to say no to these sins and stop living for our urges and stop living for the moment. We'll stop forgetting the grace of God and sinning too soon. And because God has just given us this incredible, undeserved grace. He's chosen us before the foundation of the world. He's adopted us as his sons and his daughters. He sent the spirit of his son to live in our hearts so that we would know him intimately forever. hear me. He's chosen you. You're his son. You're his daughter. He delights in you. He likes you. He wants you to be around. He does not just put up with you. It's a rest in his love for you. Preach the truths of the gospel to yourself and more and more, we will find ourselves living into his grace. Let me pray for us that we would. Jesus, thank you for this good news. That in spite of our great sin and rebellion, that you've chosen us before the foundation of the world to be your own. And that you came as a man to save us and to to realize that and accomplish that and unite us to yourself and bring us back into the family of God. And so Jesus, would we believe this? Would we believe the good news that you've always loved us, that you've chosen to save us, that you've set your love on us even though we don't deserve it? And would you help us with that to not treat your grace as a light thing to not despise the grace of God, to not treat the privileges that come with being one of your own as something light and unimportant. God, please do this in us. Make us a people that are marked by your grace, that live in response to your grace, that walk in glad obedience to you, knowing that you are better, that you are worth it, and that you are for us. I pray that you would do that, even among us now, that you start stirring that up in our hearts. In your name, amen.